Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffat, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. I reckon I would have been diagnosed with ADHD had I been born today. I'm a daydreamer, I'm easily distracted, and I've been told by teachers, uni lecturers, and military seniors alike that uh, that it's a weakness and I should work on it. But today, I'm going to say fooey to them. Of course, I understand, and we all do in mission-critical teams, that there's uh, time for deep, attention-focused work, of course. But I disagree with those who might proffer that we should resist distractions. If studying philosophy and psychology has taught me anything, it is that our brains are far superior to us and we ignore them at our own peril often. I embrace my busy mind. I welcome its temptation to wander mentally as it can lead us all to wonderful creative or discovery moments. I was recently preparing for a corporate gig and I was picking over a book, The Handbook of Embodied Cognition and Sports Psychology. It's a bunch of academic papers edited by Max Capuccio. And notwithstanding that embodied cognition is a hugely complex domain and largely theoretical, it pertains to the mind-body connection or the mind-body problem, as some may know it. You know, it encompasses memory, perception, language, emotion, reasoning, judgment, uh, all of these cognitive functions and uh, how they are applied in the context of our physical interaction with our others and, and our environment. It's all pretty crazy stuff, just as the name embodied cognition suggests, and it's a rabbit hole that even Lewis Carroll would be proud of, but it is fascinating. As I was preparing to present on team cognition and teamwork, I reflected on the coordination of a football backline and how they move together in unison, uh, anticipating each other, which led me to think about ballet and dance teams. And then to think about mission critical and teams and how fire teams entering a building are, are similar to football backlines or ballet and dance teams, how SWAT teams doing a similar thing, entering uh, a threat or entering a building, or a medical team responding to a mass casualty. There are differences but similarities to the dance team, for example. Then, while deep in distraction from my main task, I remember a a scene I had witnessed maybe half a dozen times in my life. Laying on my guts, just having been shot at by a better positioned enemy, I looked to my right and saw one of our team leaders jump to his feet and assault forward or sprint towards the enemy. As we had rehearsed many times, of course, we followed. And the team, maybe six operators, went into a kind of improvised dance, or at least it felt like that at time. It was certainly choreographed to some extent, but the same understanding of the football backline or the dance team was employed, I suppose, as we worked together to overcome adversaries. Uh, it was balletic when I think back about it. 
Long story short, it inspired me to write a poem, and almost inevitably, it got me to thinking about creativity and how in many mission-critical teams I'd been in and observed that there appeared to be a high level of creativity. That is, operators who not only bought their guitars and paintboards, for most of us, they just sit in the cupboard and gather dust, but these individuals learn to play or paint and at a very high level. But there's more to creativity beyond the arts. There's entrepreneurial expressions, problem solving, design, verbal expression, amongst others. My working hypothesis is that uh, creativity appears to be more apparent or more evident in MCT populations. And this begs some question, is it due to personality factors or individual differences? Uh, And did we select for it or do we select for it? Is it a socio-cultural artifact in which the people who join find an environment that's accepting of art or creativity? Or is it a coping mechanism? Do, Do people learn to play the guitar and learn to paint as a coping mechanism? mechanism to uh, deal with our extreme experiences that uh, we all have. Or was it was it me? Was it a cognitive bias? Was I just finding what I was looking for, you know, confirmation bias? And is it universal? The, these are all great questions and that's what will be the content of the topic for today. All of this has inspired me to contact today's guests, creative experts, I can say, in their own specific fields. Professor Kate Stevens is a cognitive scientist and professor in psychology. She's the director of Mark's Institute for Brain, Behaviour and Development at Western Sydney University, which is a research institute investigating humans interacting with each other, their environment and with technology, which I find really interesting. Kate conducts basic and applied research into the learning, perception, creation and cognition of complex actions. She also applies methods from experimental psychology to investigate human-machine interaction, that is, design, evaluation of auditory warnings, human avatar, and human-robot interaction. She's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Music Perception. Our other guest is Ben Pronk, who served 24 years in the Australian Army, the majority of which was spent with the Special Air Service Regiment the SAS. In this capacity, Ben served on multiple operational deployments and was decorated for leadership in action in Afghanistan. He concluded his service as commanding officer of the SAS. Ben is now a managing partner of Metal Group, a premium consultancy which supports clients around the world in the development of processes and capabilities across the entire spectrum of risk. And he is also faculty for the Australian Graduate School of Management. It's also worth noting that uh, Ben co-hosts his own podcast called Unforgiving 60, which I encourage you to check out. Welcome to the Teamcast, Kate and Ben. Thank you very much, Harry. And I just need to know before we start, was I one of those bosses who chided you for your ADHD? No, no, you were very supportive. <laughs> uh, yeah, very patient. Outwardly, maybe. Lovely to be here, Harry. Thank you. Nice introduction. Thanks very much. Hi, Ben. Ben, I'll, I'll kick off just asking you or, or raising uh, a, a question with you. You're, you're one of these high-achieving, high-creative types that uh, I've got my eye on. And I wanted you to come onto the team cast because of you, you have a, a strong creative bent, I'll call it. You're an accomplished guitarist, although I can see you smiling. You play with the band Tongue Charge. Are they still still going, mate? 
I did, yes. Uh, well, I think spiritually, yes. <laughs> and uh, you sing and write songs too, I know. And more recently, your passion, and probably directly to today's team cast, your passion for drawing and painting has, has gone to a new level, I think it's fair to say, but, but particularly in my eyes. Uh, it's fair to say you're pretty prolific at the moment. There seems to be something coming out most every week, I would say. Where did the creative spark, music, whatever it, it is in you, where did that start? What 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 was the origin? moment for you? I think so. I I never drew or did art at school. Um, That came much later, but certainly music was always part of our life. And I think like most or many kids, it was forced upon me through sort of piano lessons at an early age, which I I resisted. And it's quite funny in that I think that sowed a seed, even though I I didn't sort of follow through with it. And it almost took for me to come back round. I I sort of quit piano, uh, but then came back round under my own steam. So more intrinsically sort of motivated into music as a as a high school kid clearly the sole purpose was because i i thought it would help me meet girls it did not it never has but i've met some good people <laughs> both genders through it and so in in many ways i i sort of got into it through a, a forced mechanism and i wonder if there's not something in that there's there's an element of technical skill that you need to just sort of grind through in a lot of these things art dance music that then opens this gateway to something that i think is much deeper and much more beautiful and certainly for drawing i came into that about five years ago i was in fact in that role as commanding officer of the Special Air Service Regiment and spent a lot of time on planes, both military and civilian. Most of the work I was doing that I'd normally do on a plane, it was classified stuff and I I couldn't do on a plane. And so I had all this dead time in aircraft. And once you've watched every movie on the Qantas in-flight roster, you start getting pretty bored. And so it it sort of reignited a a passion to draw, which I'd sort of touched on mainly on operational deployments, which is another interesting thing maybe we could explore later on. But Initially, it was very much, I was sort of surprised, again, this idea of the technical versus the artistic. I, I'd always thought drawing was something you're either born with or you, you weren't. It was some kind of gift. I was surprised at just how much it was a technical process. It was like learning any skill. There was getting repetitions in. There was that sort of, I'm, I'm nowhere near 10,000 hours, but, you know, that Anders Ericsson, Malcolm Gladwell popula- uh, popularized the idea of developing through deliberate practice. And I found that very much at the front end. It was a bit of a grind. And then it sort of opened this thing, which is now much more, I don't know, meditative or, or sort of, um, I guess, fulfilling and feels less like work. Yeah, that uh, I want to come back. There's a couple of things you picked up on that I'd like to come back to. You know, is it a type of coping mechanism in high stress environments? You know, long duration effort, long duration deployments that I think you're alluding to flow there as well somehow. And I'm interested, I just quickly, I'll, I'll just ask you, you know, did you find do you find the cognitive real estate your your thinking uh, is similar around playing guitar and drawing you know are, they, are there likes cognitively for you yeah and i'm i'm not clever enough and i'd be fascinated if kate has any perspectives to join the dots but some of my observations based on my n equals 1 experiment are that there, there are these weird links and parallels between music and drawing that I find that I will hear a, a beautiful, particularly a multi-layered song just on the radio, you know, where there is voice and drums and, and sort of guitar and bass working in harmony. And that will inspire me to paint. 
you know, so there, there's some sort of connectivity there. And the other thing that I found really interesting, and I don't know whether this is confirmation bias or whether there's an actual link, is that as I got into drawing, and, and we can talk about flow state, but I, I did find it something that I I was definitely using my brain, but it was not work-related, and I found it very relaxing from that aspect. But it felt like it was making new neural pathways in that I was thinking differently in a work context afterwards and, and maybe seeing things a little clearer or joining dots that I hadn't up till that point. So, I, I again, I don't know whether this is a placebo effect or, or whether I'd read an article and, and sort of superimposed it onto my life, but I definitely felt benefits in my work role as a result of sort of getting more serious and more consistent in creative outlets. Yeah, that's great. And I I definitely want to tap Kate's brain on that. And I love the other thing you you alluded to there was this kind of intersection of, I'm just making this up on the wrong, of of competence, meeting discipline, meeting opportunity and creativity, kind of personality factors or biological kind of factors, I guess. It's wonderful how you you mentioned music inspiring art you know often i'll think in my own kind of rudimentary ambitions you don't really know want to know where it comes from you're not sure where it comes from but it's kind of that's the magic of it and maybe that's what draws you back to the well time and time again kate i know your um pursuits and passion in uh creativity or creative endeavors is it i'll dare i say it, a little more refined than certainly mine and maybe ben's uh probably in in creative dance and ballet if you like and and other areas of dance and also more orchestral type of organized music where did your passion for for creativity in these domains uh, come from thanks harry i i'm in awe of the two of you actually you 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 really have got a, a lot of the ideas i think that scientists have been working on to try and understand the processes but i think you've captured a lot uh, just in those opening remarks i i had a, a what sounds like a common story. My family was very musical. My parents were both musical and, in, and indeed met each other through a, an amateur kind of a musical uh, society. And so there was music in the house. It, it was a language. It was very much part of the environment uh, that I was born into. It was always there. I believe I still carry a sense of the conduction, if you like, through the, the sternum. Um, as my mother spoke or sang and I was sitting on her lap, I have a sense of that that acoustic and bodily experience, hearing her voice carried to me when I was so close with her, you know, conducted there through the through the skeleton of, of course, as well as the hearing apparatus. So a very acoustic and auditory and musical kind of family environment. So it was very easy for me to enjoy music and play music. I'm a technician. I think I have gone through the some extended practice and training. I am not a professional musician, but I guess I've used it to regulate my own mood. I can remember as an adolescent, you know, the joy of banging out the Beethoven as loudly and as um, angrily as I possibly could. It it had a very uh, effective kind of cathartic um, experience for me as an adolescent. I realise that now. I don't know that I realised it at the time. So, it was the language in the family home. Um, I love that. As a psychology student, it was very easy to ask, what's the psychology of this? And that's where those two worlds collide. What is the perception and the psychology of, of music? And that's yeah. where my PhD started. And, and you're working with uh, some groups at the moment. You just want to give us some, um, or, or recently or throughout your studies, you know, just give us a backdrop of uh, the types of populations you've worked with or teams that you've worked with. 
So it's uh, it's again a very privileged opportunity to sit in the studio and watch creatives go about their business. Uh, I've worked with Australian Dance Theatre um, most recently, so uh, it's a contemporary dance company based in Adelaide, one of the earliest companies in Australia, and and to sit there and watch elite artists, professional artists, improvise and create, you know, as as uh, a matter of course. As you were talking earlier, I think it is improvisation that we're really talking about here. I think the kind of music that I learned as a student and then I play currently, that's what I mean about the technical aspect. But I think you're really interested in this notion of creating something new and the improvisation as the means to do that. And Australian Dance Theatre is probably the most recent example that I've worked with. Yeah, and it's where I, uh, I'm really motivated to, to, or I was mostly motivated to pick this as a subject for, for a team cast because in basic soldiering in, in my career, you know, probably the most basic team action or, or, or team activity that you undertake is CQB, close quarter battle training. And it starts at very fundamental levels, just in an open environment, like a basketball court type setting, where you move around with each other and sense each other and start to develop choreographed patterns of movement. And that may transfer then onto a football field and then into the bush where you've got limited, your senses are uh, limited and and constrained. I I remember the first time I really got it, I was, we were creeping into a a room in Afghanistan. We were looking for a bad guy. There was people asleep on the floor or or appeared to be, and we were creeping over people. And I remember a, a gun muzzle coming up into my peripheral vision and I knew exactly who it was. I didn't have a sense of who was there, but there was just this this kind of team cognition, I guess, you know, where you're starting to think as a team. And I, I guess that's that. Then I watch ballet, which I'm I'm kind of fascinated with the whole psychology and team dynamics of ballet. When we talked earlier, Kate, you you referred to marching, and I've specifically got that. I want to come back to that because I know that will resonate with uh, with our listening. Kate, what is creativity? What is it? So. Uh- I think you've touched on so much of it, Harry. Creativity is something I think that everyone can engage with. I think perhaps some people have different grades of fuel, but I I have take a very optimistic and and plastic view of the the human brain that we we are all creative. From a theoretical point of view, we know that creativity is not just in the skull, that it is actually very much influenced by the social and the environmental and the contextual and the group dynamics as well, particularly going beyond the solo kind of context. And there are particular definitions of it. So one often would refer to novelty. One would also refer to things like the workability of the solution. And originality is often a term that's used as well. And I think, again, we're talking about different kinds of creativity. You can imagine the creativity that preserves the paradigm there is also that creativity that modifies the paradigm. So you can think of artists and and movements in visual art or or music or any of the art forms where there's incremental kinds of change and then there's that big change, that really paradigm disruptive and modifying step. And I think this is how we start to think of creativity in many ways as a continuum. 
from that incremental through to that real paradigm shift in thinking. And, of course, then a new form. The mould is broken and a, and a complete new form emerges. So like uh, perhaps like breakdance, uh, you know, and, and hip-hop music, which kind of really moved the needle, I, I guess more than any other type of music in my lifetime has moved the needle culturally and and in, indeed dance music, et cetera. Is that, that, that the kind of what you're talking exactly. about? Exactly. And in visual art, Ben, I'm thinking of if, if one thinks about the different genres of art. Yeah, and impressionism the, the coming in. Yeah. Line of those, you know, and then and then cubism comes along, and yeah. and, and, and Picasso and Braque, and you know, there's, there's this, this sudden change. Um, then you you see what um, Jackson Pollock did in the visual space, you know, becoming more and more abstracted, and and you can see that abstraction happening in music. You can see it happening in dance as well um, contemporary dance again a very abstract form it's very deep in us isn't it i mean that you know if uh, if i could be very i suppose naive for a moment and say that we've been you know drawing on caves and dancing around the fire and singing for, for a long time so the evolutionary purpose of of create it has a purpose it's not just this kind of blue poles jackson pollock or ben pronk drawing and harry playing music whatever Terrific, Harry. You're exactly right. And this is why I think there is a continuum and why we are all creative in in different ways. The prehistory, if we take the prehistory of music, you know, the question why, why music? Why does music exist? It, it, It appears to be universal. It appears to have been in all cultural forms. It's always difficult to falsify that hypothesis, but it certainly seems to be near universal. So does it confer any advantages? Steven Pinker, the linguist, famously said that music is auditory cheesecake, which of course, you know, was throwing down the gauntlet for all of us to find, well, why does music exist? What are the advantages? Why is it such a universal form? So the fact that it allows expression, the fact that it irregulates emotion, the fact that it evokes pleasure, you touched on the forms that we know. There are early flutes, bone flutes. We know the prehistory of music from those kind of archaeological digs. Moving together, I always think, even precedes music. So if you think um, in the beginning there was movement. Yep. From movement, the gesture can then become a, a sound and can be codified as language. But there's, there's an interesting timeline there from movement coordinated movement and the benefits that come with a group moving together in time, making sound together in time. If we think back thousands and thousands of years, that group or clan that is coordinating its sound sounds really big and sounds really impressive and very dominating of their territory. So you can start to at least hypothesise about evolutionary advantages of not just making noise but coordinating that to some advantage for for the for the clan or group ben sorry i cut you off before no look i was just really sort of interested in that idea i think certainly you know if you look at a a complex adaptive system science view they're saying that two of these characteristics are that adaptation and emergent behavior so properties of the group that don't exist within an individual and i think what kate's talking about is exactly on that at at a very sort of primal form and i think that speaks to this idea about dance i'm super interested kate made the differentiation between creativity at an individual and then a social level i'm kind of trying to to think does creativity exist without that social construct i mean so much particularly when we in the things we refer to as the arts i mean 
it's kind of for other people, isn't it? It's it's kind of transmitting an idea and, and getting this sense of beauty to share within a group. I'm sort of envisaging someone by themselves, you know, last person on earth. I wonder if they're still drawing, painting and singing maybe. But I, I do think there is that social bit. But I think what's fascinating, and we touched on some of those schools of art, that these groundbreaking changes, which let's not forget they still draw a lot of parallels to, to earlier schools. I mean, there's still composition, there's still sort of use of colour and that sort of stuff and impressionism that was there in realism and, and all the way prior. But they often are resisted by the, the sort of society. So we've got this interesting tension where we as a society sort of say we're championing creativity and something new and if we go a little bit too far it's it's reluctant but then it gradually takes hold and and we see a new school come in it's a funny tension to me that that relationship between creativity at an individual level and how it's nurtured or rejected initially by society and I, I, I like the idea that in those evolutionary perspectives that it it's also a sense-making mechanism as human became conscious and, and were able to communicate and wondered what was in the heavens and what was around them and how they interacted with the environment, I guess, their ways, maybe even early forms of religion, you know, or what, that's where religion and other kind of philosophical, I suppose, musings were, emerge out of, of, of experiencing music and dance and, and through through art, if you like. Harry, you're right, and, and Ben too, thank you. They're great comments there. I think um, the meaning-making is very important. The kinds of things we're talking about are very efficient packages as well. If you think about the oral tradition of passing stories on and the identity that's carried with that. So I think that brings in the social, again, just being back in a, a prehistory approach to this. You know, it is a form of notation, I suppose, perhaps pre-written kinds of language so you're able to communicate but you're also if you think about an artwork in any of the genres and any of the art forms it's there's there's an efficiency with it and I've often thought in the, the study of visual perception for example the artists and again visual artists they understood visual perception way ahead of those people who taught you and me psychology, Harry, you know, there's the understanding of perspective, the monocular cues to depth, how you convey the height in the visual field, conveying where the, the individual is and where that object is in, in size in relation to another. There's, there's a lot of understanding of perception and psychology in those early artworks. There's a, a great book, I think it's called Proust was a Neuroscientist, which is essentially picking up on this idea that actually it's the arts that have that, that knowledge, whether it's explicit knowledge or not, it's conveyed through the artwork and, and in some ways the scientists catch up. The personal or solo versus social distinction is a really interesting one. So I, I can draw on a couple of different theories here. One is the old idea of brainstorming. So Osborne back in the 50s was really interested in, you know, how many ideas are generated, how many new, novel, original, workable kinds of ideas come up when someone works at a task on their own compared with working with someone else or in a small group. Yep. And you start to see these social processes at work. Of course, we can do that. A lot of us are creating individually as part of our, our roles. It's not so much that you generate more ideas in a group or in a pair, the process is a different one. So there's a qualitative shift and there's a qualitative change in the social aspects of 
creating together. We see this in the in the some of the dance research I've done. I, I compared a, a dancer improvising on their own compared with improvising with another, and that other might be someone they often improvise with, or it's someone they don't often very very often improvise with, and you actually get more ideas, movement ideas, when you're on your own. But somehow the quality of the ideas in the pairwise or the group context is different. And there's lots of reasons for that. Expertise plays a role here as well. So there are some variables that affect the, the system. But there's, there's an element of play. There's an element of risk. So I, I'm thinking of an example where I had three dancers. They needed to improvise the concept of a cylinder. So three dancers one female, two male, got them, one of the examples of the movement idea was to roll together. So they okay. combined themselves and rolled along the wall. To make the shape of a suit, yeah. Correct. Now, I see, this unfolds in front of my eyes for a start, which is magnificent. I can count the ideas, but there was risk in that. So there's risk, then there's trust, and all of the, the, the benefits, I guess, from that social process and the relational aspects there that, of course, wouldn't happen if you were sitting there making a cylinder all on your own. Yeah. I remember I was in a workshop with a bunch of AFL coaches, was it last year or the year before, and we had uh, a couple of choreographers from Cirque du Soleil in in the country doing the rounds, and they hosted a workshop and took them through the improvised class, the improv class, and I've done that a few times. I actually did it with uh, some US military types and the same reaction. It's just like stone statues, you know, raise your arm and some basic improv, and it does, it's, it's risk. It's about risk, you know, the individual perception of being embarrassed or whatever the consequences are. Yeah, I've got to say they didn't advance much in that uh, 40-minute workshop. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was pretty terrible. There was no cylinders being made there, that's for sure. And, and there's your technique. Mm. Yeah, Ben, it goes to that kind of, uh, you, you touched on it before, practice, when you practice creativity, it potentially uh, allows or opens your mind to new other ways of thinking or positions you differently. Firstly, two questions. Firstly, just talk us through that for you or as you understand it in your own thinking, being creative and then going into a military decision-making environment you know, where, where the you know, quite different, I imagine. And also, do we select for it? Yeah. Look, for me, one of the big, I guess, light bulb moments was that the concepts of art and science are not binary as I alluded to before, I'd sort of thought that being artistic was something that you naturally had and, and you were that kind of person. And I'm sure there are people who are predisposed to it through genetics, nature, nurture, blah, blah, blah. But I'd always thought that, you know, the science, the hard skills, learning how to shoot, learning how to, you know, do all these things, that was something you could just get better at practice. But the idea of creativity was just this blessing and and you know the the british in a military context talk about the kingfisher moment you know that flash of brilliance as a kingfisher dives across a pool the french call it coup d'oeil you know the beat bat of an eye and you and you get that brilliant idea and these all sort of almost presuppose that this is just a gift from the heavens that you you get naturally and that's kind of what i thought that you you can either do it or you can't i'm convinced now that it's not the case that you can through deliberate practice get better at being creative and this comes to the root in my idea and and Kate touched on it before you know when we talk about creativity it's got to have an element of novelty to it but in general we're standing on the shoulders of giants I mean that old Picasso quote you know a good artist borrows a great artist steals I mean there's nothing 
entirely new under the sun. And if we're developing, even through, you know, a lot of painters do master copies, they will, they will try and copy one of their favourite artists. If we're doing that absolute plagiarism, where we're getting the reps on the technical skill, I think that creates the environment in which we can have those Kingfisher moments where all of a sudden we've got enough technical competence, we've got the science down pat, that creates an environment where we can have what I used to think of as this artistic flash, you know, that that creativity, we can see a modification or an evolution or a new way of, of doing something. And that I find really exciting. And what about going back to you know, thinking about your day job mm. after being creative, you know, the transference, do you think my hypothesis is, is right uh, in your observations? Do we see mm. more creativity or, you know, as Kate put it, just people are more willing to take risks socially? Do you do you agree with that in, in kind of mission-critical team settings? Yeah, I wonder if it's mission-critical teams or high-performing teams, and I, I'd sort of draw the line fairly arbitrarily, but I have noticed a lot of the clients we work with some of the ones at the the real leading edge are sort of oh by the way i'm i'm writing a play or you know i'm, I'm sort of performing in a, a symphony orchestra sort of thing and it, it's again maybe it's confirmation bias but it's it's too common to to ignore so i do think there is something about that that high performance i've also got a real a strong pet hypothesis there's an old saying there are no atheists in a foxhole i'm not going to touch that but i reckon there's a lot of artists in a foxhole and harry you'd probably agree it is funny when you go on an operational deployment how you see the emergence of artistic behaviors you know people start writing poems people pull out guitars people enjoy singer uh, sing-alongs people start drawing that you you were never exposed to before and i've, I've got a little pet theory that when you're in those high pressure environments that and you're seeing some of the worst aspects of human behavior you know that that sort of deliberate violence and and the destruction that that can create that maybe there is a drive to create something beautiful so i wonder if that's a sort of facet of the the job in terms of this like a bit of a coping mechanism i I reckon there's a bit of that a little bit yeah yeah i certainly and from my experience kate spoke about the catharsis of beating a drum the the catharsis of an artistic process i 100 i use this actively along with things like meditation as a deliberate tool to to sort of vent and re-level i do want to touch on that concept of selection and and it was fascinating hearing kate talk about you know the the artists or the practitioners sort of leading the scientists in in many of these ways and certainly i reckon we've seen that in military selection courses we've been doing these for whatever it is now 70 odd years and i don't reckon there were too many psychologists in advising on special forces selection in the 50s and 60s i think it was this trial and error and we'd work out that if you park trucks up at the top of the hill and tell people they can get on the truck when they reach the top of the hill and then you drive those bloody things off as soon as you reach the top of the hill then you're going to select for the kind of people who are going to survive in that environment. And so we had this trial and error sort of emergent behaviour that has been retrospectively recognised by science as really important, you know, that ambiguity, ambiguity tolerance, climax, anticlimax, being able to deal with that. I reckon we've probably got a similar thing in creativity. I don't think we formally select for it. I, I don't know that we're actually ticking a box saying, is this person creative? But I think a lot of the byproducts of what we're observing, you know, people thinking differently, people being able to, even just in a social interaction way, uh, develop methods of coping. I think humour, which is an incredibly important component 
is and it, it's creative aspect you know finding the bright side of being wet tired miserable hungry sore you you need creativity to do that that doesn't come naturally and and so to answer your question i don't know that formally we're we're sort of checking a box saying yes this person is creative but i reckon we are actually selecting for creativity through a lot of these uh, selection processes yeah i'd be interested to find out in other mission critical teams you know are they selecting for creativity without even realizing it, you know, by some of the categories and things that they're looking for in in people. Kate, does it does creativity? Do you think, in your experience, just riffing along this notion of uh, high performing people being more likely to be creative or whatever it is, does it confer an advantage? Do, do, do more do creative people actually have an advantage in performance or in human endeavour? Do you think? I think it's probably. Such a broad term, Harry. Again, one could go to the heightened forms of art and probably see some cases there that aren't particularly advantageous. I think you've already, you've both been touching on the very effective processes for the individual. So even we've we've touched on the the social and the relational aspects. We've we didn't really answer earlier the idea of a, a people creating alone. And I, I, in some ways you have answered that question because people are, you know, that that is as creative as for an audience. I think this is why, it, it, again, there is this kind of a continuum here. I, I have had contact with professional artists who don't need an audience, that the work is not for an audience. They're working through the resolution of ideas that they find. The expression of ideas in multiple forms is what they need to process and it doesn't need to be a social process and it doesn't need to be for an audience. So, again, I think we've got this notion of creativity as a continuum. Humour is a great example of creativity in the moment, you know, and I think there's a couple of interesting things in that example. One for is the idea of a joke or humour disrupting expectations. And I think this is rather an interesting way of thinking about music and probably Ben could think of other examples of this in other art forms too. So music, the poet Auden said, you know, it's one of the best ways of digesting time. The brain we know is a predicting machine. We predict. And music is a very wonderful play on prediction and you can think of examples of pieces that are completely predictable (laughs) so i violated your expectation there so we've got a brain that's predicting you don't need to be musically trained to know something went wrong there so i've set you up in a certain way and then i've violated that and one of the strengths of music as an example is this ability to be non-referential. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't stand for anything. Of course, it can be associated with things, but it's non-referential. But it takes you on this journey where you are, you're starting to anticipate, you're starting to predict, and then there's this, this kind of enjoyment of that expectation either being realised or being violated, in the, just in the example I've given. And... I think composers and artists and all anyone being creative is playing with that predictability, but that the novelty there is in just that subtle kind of unexpected 
event. And I think humour is that's what how one of the ways humour works, isn't it? That it's yeah. you you set up in a certain way, and then there's this wonderful surprise. You can think of that that the startle response. You know, there's a surprise element to that. That has a biological aspect to it. You know, you could you could look at this from a, a neural and biological perspective, the wonder and excitement, the arousal yeah. that comes with surprise. I'd, I'd like to come back to that because I think humour is a good example of how, you know, neurochemical interactions and, and uh, how it can make us feel and relieve tension and stress. And we talk a lot about that in, in um, mental health and wellbeing. Can I, just to, to, to finish, I guess, on this selection aspect that we see in mission critical teams, most mission critical teams will use the, I think it's the Costa and McRae big five personality factors yeah. or or variations of, you know, the, is it the PF16 or, or or variations of that? But they go to these, I, I think the cost, I think the big five factors is well, well regarded. Are you aware of any, are there any correlations with personality or individual differences and and high likelihood of creativity? Thank, yes, there, there is. And, and again, it's not it's hard to just say this in the absolute because of all of the, the variables that we've mentioned, which is the social and the contextual, the level of expertise, their individuals are at play together with the environment in all of these situations. And one could be creative in one context and in another and not in another. And the technical aspect, I think we were also touching on the importance of the technique. You know, your your improvisation experience, there wasn't that much fun, Harry, presumably because there was a there was a bit of a deficiency in the technical side of things. Yeah. Once you've got the tools, and of course we know that people are drawing on tools and heuristics to get by. You can see that in a in a various kinds of ensembles as well. But things like openness, so the person when We've looked at. I should uh, expand the, the the big five yeah. factors are openness, conscientiousness, uh, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. That's that's right, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, openness is a key factor. Uh, openness is there was a, a phenomenon that came into some disrepute and, and for various reasons, but there was this notion of the Mozart effect with children that there was some heightened performance on a spatial task after kids had listened to Mozart. And, of course, everyone wants this to to happen. Now, we can understand why that's happened. Some of it is around arousal. It was a very short-term kind of an effect. But when people have really studied the relationships between musical training, for example, and cognitive skills and abilities, there's certainly associations there. There's correlations. When you look at the individual differences, openness tends to come out as one. In some of the artistic kinds of ensemble works, there's an empathy aspect that seems to be a play as well. Now, it's it's always difficult to get to the causality. It's very easy for us in psychology to demonstrate a correlation. So I don't want to necessarily say that these are causal relationships, but there are certainly associations between things like openness and empathy and some of these artistic endeavours. And if you think about the discipline the training, the practice that Ben was talking about earlier, that discipline that comes with that, the ability to attend selectively but also to distribute my attention because I've also got to listen to what the the performer is doing over here. So there's this, this malleability in attentional processes that we believe is also important and something that is very much part of the musical example of, uh, of performance but also creativity okay so openness empathy I think they're the kinds of things we see from an individual's point of view 
along with all those other variables that play. And picking up on on Kate's reference to to that sort of deliberate practice, I mean, conscientiousness is a massive component from my perspective. And you look at uh, Angela Duckworth's work on grit. Uh, She defines that as a subset of conscientiousness in in terms of a personality characteristic. And it comes back, I I know I've quoted that that sort of Anders Ericsson 10,000 hours thing before, I definitely think there is an element here where just that deliberate practice, consciously working to get better at the basics. And Harry, you mentioned that sort of sixth sense when you you knew it was your your teammate just by the way they carried their rifle through the corner of your eye. I mean, that is something that does come, that almost sixth sense. And of course, it's just more of a rapid assimilation and decision-making process that comes through. As I understand, you know, myelination of certain neural pathways, that is another factor. And, And in in fact, I think Gladwell in Outliers talks about Pete Sampras's forehand that he he knows as soon as the ball's left his opponent's racket where he needs to be positioned to to hit the winner down the line, and that kind of intuition at an individual level, and I think that that sort of deliberate practice at a team level that creates that that knowledge in a CQB environment, and I've got no doubt in a, a football environment and in a ballet environment and in any of those sort of social expressions. Yeah. And you see it in music, you can feel it. You can feel the change through the music. Um, I always thought it was the beer talking, but there's obviously something a bit deeper and a bit more profound going on at a at a neurological level. So just I just want to finish on humor. I just want to touch on this because I want to, I do want to touch on the neuroscience a little bit, Kate. Then we'll we'll talk about this kind of so what of all of this. We, we I think we've it's a broad area, of course, and we could talk all day about it, but I just want to maybe capture what what you know the practice etc before we move on so you picked up on humor there you know in a rough kind of way when we crack a joke we're under duress that joke if everyone finds it funny of course has an impact has a neurological impact a biological or phys- physiological em- impact on us in it in that we can summarize it as releasing you know the feel-good neurological chemicals can you kind of expand on that and give us a bit more science kate just what's happening there and then and maybe it's linked to when we are are in creative moments and potentially even flow, if that's the right term to use. Yeah, what, what's kind of happening there neurologically? So to pick up on the earlier points, just as a, to preface the answer, Harry, I think Harry has, um, sorry, Ben has been very clear there about the importance of those basic technical skills, and they're not basic. You know, we are talking talking about proficiency here, and I think it's very important to call that out because, as a scientist, I don't think there's anything mystical happening. You know, there's not some special magical thing that you know, and then then creativity happens. It, it should be able to be explained. The person in the moment may not be able to explain it. It's very difficult, particularly when you are a subject matter expert and so much has been rehearsed and practised and has become automatic and implicit. It's sometimes hard to then make that knowledge explicit. But it's knowledge nonetheless. And that to me is is just something that that underpins the, the kinds of performance that you and Ben are talking about, Harry. There's a couple of things going on in all of the, these topics that we've touched on, we've, we've talked about openness and empathy. I want to also go back to an earlier point that Ben made and it, it, his description of putting into music some idea that starts to smack of synesthesia. 
So it starts to give us a sense that we ex- we are experiencing, let's say, an auditory phenomenon visually. All right. So I, I just want to we we didn't touch on this earlier, and and I didn't want to let it go by any longer. Ben, there is an account of the newborn who is born as a synesthete, that the senses aren't really all distinguished the way they are. They can hear colours and they can smell sounds. Yeah. And then the pruning happens and, you know, the pruning starts very early on and continues and, and there's some refinement. But what you were describing there, and I think another efficiency about art and creativity is this multi-modality of it. So music is not just auditory, it is visual, it is motoric, it makes me move, it makes me use my body as an instrument, whether I'm singing or dancing or moving, maybe I'm just stamping my feet because that's all I can do. So there's there's so many of the senses engaged by something like music and you, you were talking about it I imagine you, you see the same thing in, in visual arts as well. I've watched choreographers and dancers expressing through movement a rhythm, a lilt, a painting, a poem, an idea, a feeling. So there's this multimodality aspect of producing these things as well as perceiving, presumably as as we're receiving this as an audience member, we're, we're getting this multiple stimulation as well. So synesthesia, Harry, we don't talk about it very often, but that's an interesting term. And, and the other... We'll put, that, we'll put that in the show notes with a link for okay. everybody listening. No, because I think it's really... We, we, you know, we all know those instances where a sound or a smell triggers a, a, another memory or a feeling or doing something kind of sparks a smell or, or, or you hear something. I, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of all in it. It's a big, big area to mm. unpack. And, Kate, before we leave it, sorry, I was just going to ask, can, can that be developed. So you, you mentioned about the, the juvenile mind and we prune through efficiency to try and get the neural pathways that are going to be most efficient. We have periods of neuroplasticity through our life, but there's been some great new research on how we can remyelinate pathways, different pathways to make different connections. I think Deutsch, Norman Deutsch's work, you know, the, the neurons that wire together, uh, fire together, wire together. Can we, through deliberate practice, laminate those pathways can we change our brains to to get more synesthesiastic <laughs> in adult age <laughs> well the brain is plastic and i yeah. you know, this is one of the the reasons i think everyone can be creative um I, I think we are learning organisms and we continue to learn all the way through life and there are situations some nice studies even showing that quite late in life and even people with dementia there can be still some learning happening in there so putting down neural pathways is, is something that should be able to be achieved all the way through the whether there's any kind of cognitive neuroscience around this, I don't know. So don't let me claim something here that I, that I, I can't draw on. But certainly I've worked, again, in the dance context where listening with the whole body is what dancers do. And there's a technique called viewpoints that comes out of some artists in, in New York, which is about listening with the whole body. And, Harry, I... I mentioned the synesthesia also because of your reference in the introduction with the gun muzzle, all right? You're listening with the whole body Mm. there. You've got this awareness 
again, based on years and years of training and experience, not just expertise. So that's the the practice. But this sense of heightened awareness, and that's in some ways that is a synesthetic experience, Ben. And and in studying what happens, again, just at a descriptive level with dancers learning this viewpoints technique, you can, we ran a study where we, we were trying to demonstrate that there is some improved situational awareness and uh, more general awareness to the group after the viewpoints technique. The other thing that really struck me when I first walked into a dance studio as a, as a cognitive scientist was what the choreographer told me was felt time. So in contemporary dance, people create dance often in silence. It's not steps to music the way ballroom dancing or, or classical ballet is. It, is. it is movement in and of itself with the intention of creating a, a work of art, but it's often in silence. And the power of a, an ensemble of dancers who generally know each other very well, they knew where each other was in space and they had this ability to synchronise and coordinate in time without an external timekeeper. They didn't Lovely. need music. They didn't need a metronome. And, I, and, Harry, I think that's what's happening in your synchronised ballet, balletic kind of performance in, in high-risk situations too. Yeah, perfect segue. I couldn't have done it any better, Kate. We're talking to Professor Kate Stevens, who's a cognitive scientist and a professor in psychology, and Ben Pronk, ex-spec ops operator and mad guitarist and artist here on uh, the Mission Critical Team, Teamcast. That leads us perfectly, Kate, into the benefits to mission critical teams of this discussion. I think a lot of this would have already been washing over our audience already and people, it's little bits resonating, particularly the instructor cadre who are not only selecting individuals, but they're also training and developing them maintaining them for operations or just whether it it might be rehab like for an old fellow like me and even in recovery and I want to I want to kind of finish I guess on the therapeutic benefits of creativity but both at a at a, a individual and creative sorry an individual and team level but just I want, I want us to kind of turn our minds now to imagine, you know, a fire team uh, arriving at a burning building or a house or a rescue. In Australia right now, we know the floods are, are going on and, and, and emergency services are reacting all over the place in teams and coordinating and, and it's chaotic, et cetera. Mass casualty situations where police and, and fire and emergency and paramedics are turning up, military situations. It seems to me that, uh, and you've touched on it, that balletic or coordinated creative dance almost, although it's been choreographed and there's there's an element of technical skill that we've discussed. You know, are there ways that we can train that you might think creative ways, other ways that we can train rather than high repetitions of the same choreography, if you like, or the same patterns, team patterns? Are there other things we could be looking at that have transference to creativity or building those team cohesion and, and, and team cognition? The practice and the rehearsal and, and the technical skills that are a given, I mean, I, I don't think we can get anywhere without those, and, and I think that's um, an important fundamental. I've watched a group of semi-professional adolescent dancers work towards a professional-level um, performance after six months. They've worked with experts. And what's interesting in, watch, in, in the 
the dynamical system that is an artistic ensemble like that is the the range of skills that come from working together. So it, it does come back to this idea of teams being able to achieve things that are not able to be achieved by an individual. And I think the the experience of doing that, and it can come in many forms. Clearly, one would want to be practicing the kinds of scenarios you're you're expecting your team to go into, Harry. But I, there are, I think, benefits from drawing on different domains. I mentioned to you that I'd watched an interview with Simon Rattle, the conductor. Now, Simon Rattle is working with again, people at the very top of their game. And he described facilitating play. He's he's facilitating the right environment for that elite and very talented group of musicians to to be optimised. And I suppose as leaders that's, that's what we're all hoping that we're doing. But that probably can be developed in various contexts. It doesn't always need to be in the particular domain. Going back to the, the the youth ensemble, and I mentioned risk taking earlier. You know, these are these are adolescents, males and females working together, a range of ages. So there's a buddy system happening there. There's a mentoring and a role model aspect that's happening. Females and males together. The risk here in in contemporary dance is physical risk. It's not just embarrassment. There's there's certainly an element of that, but there's also the physical risk of the, the three moving as a cylinder and just the benefits that come for that team from the, the different kinds of exercises that they've gone through, the benefits of that into other kinds of things that those those kids will do post the, the dance ensemble. Most of them won't be dancers. But I, I think those of us who have worked in the arts and in the teams where the, the goal is to create something new, it's not to win, it's, it, it is to create something, and I think that's what Simon Rattle's doing with his orchestra as well. It is, it's as well-oiled as a soccer team or a football team. Mm, but the goal here is creating, and even if they're playing Beethoven or, or a Mozart symphony, there's still room for nuance and creativity while working together as a team, you know, because they have to keep in time, they have to adhere to the, the general structure of the work but that that is what takes a good orchestra or a good musician to being great it's that nuance that element of originality and creativity that comes in the timing or the expression and I I I think the the artistic kind of context encourages that teamwork with the goal of Success and achievement, but not necessarily winning. And I think there are there are benefits to that. It's also that idea of of the the group achieving much more than any of the individuals could have achieved. I, and there is some biology that sits behind at least the music aspect of this that I can touch on. But I the the teamwork and the generalisation of these skills is probably what you're getting at in, in your comment. Yep. And Ben, what 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 about you, mate? What have what have you learned as a creative being that you could bring to leadership or team development? Um, have you thought much about that? Yeah, I have. And and I think probably to go away from the the sort of team construct that take 
Kate just spoke about too, a more individual aspect. I think there's a big part of it linked to emotional regulation in, in high pressure situations. I mentioned before that I personally find the sort of creative process very cathartic. I think Kate touched on that as well. And I find similar benefits to drawing or painting than I do to meditation. And, and I think there's a link in there in terms of that mindfulness. So the ability to focus intently on one specific thing, you know, to, to try and block out the white noise and hush the chattering monkeys or whatever our, our Buddhist friends might might call it. These are replicated in both mindfulness meditation and in a lot of creative processes. And indeed, if you look at Cheek Sent Me High, Mihai Cheek Sent Me High, I'll learn to pronounce that so I can sound learned. But his, his work on flow, some of the characteristics of that, time passes incredibly quickly, you're in a completely focused state, the rest of the world stops existing, you're getting that, that sort of appropriate level of challenge and arousal, but you're not overstressed. All of those sort of things are kind of linked with this idea of mindfulness that you, you're able to focus your attention on one thing. That to me is in extremely transferable. I have found since uh, starting meditating and I, I wish I'd done that a whole lot earlier and starting drawing, which I also wish I'd done a whole lot earlier, that I'm able to focus more intently. And uh, Tim Curtis, my business partner and, and sort of co-author, introduced me to a thing called the Pomodoro Technique, which is a kind of a work application of these kind of mindfulness, you know, remove distractions, focus on a single task with a set time limit. All of these things, I think, are, are interlinked in terms of their ability to prime you to be able to concentrate at a task at hand and block external stressors and, and noise, mental noise. And I think that kind of transferability into a high-pressure situation, you spoke about, you know, the, the fire team rocking up at a site and, I don't know, I, I assume it's it's terrifying, you know, there's there's buildings on fire and you know there's people in there and maybe people are screaming and there's destroyed onlookers and there's all this sort of stuff and you need to be able to focus on a task at hand i think these concepts of mindfulness whether they come in the form of meditation or creativity creative outlets definitely contribute to an ability to to thrive and and become efficient in those sort of situations and that that flow i i we talked about this when we uh, chatted last week i find when i'm playing guitar in particular in an axe flow, almost deliberately, I can find it. Other than that, I, I've, I've always been interested in flow and the concept, but I, I'm still kind of you know, not not fully convinced that it's that easily to switch on without hours and thousands of hours of practice to do so. You know, you think about the Buddhist monks and chanting and that kind of embodied creativity or, or I don't know what it is or flow, sorry. But it, it's obviously something when you're hyper-focused in sports, it has a, has a place. I can see that attending to, you know, playing a game of tennis or a world championship, obviously you've got, you don't want to be thinking about the what's what the bills at home or anything. But I find when, when, I, when I'm personally, when I'm being creative, this, it just kind of happens. Happens. It's easy to enact or deliberately enact. And that's it kind of brings me to the, I don't want to get there yet, but to that kind of back to that therapeutic nature of creativity. Ben, I know you've done some work with the Army Arts Project, and they're looking at some research out of I think University of Adelaide on arts, uh, therapeutic nature of I think general arts. But uh, I just wanted to bring you back to uh, Kate, if I can, to 
this notion of how can we introduce creativity into teams, into a training environment to enhance other uh, training regimes that we employ in the mission critical teams and and just expand a bit more on play because I think there's something in, in play, look, maybe a deliberate a practice of, in, in play. I mean, there are very various tasks one could use. I, I was looking back to one of the ways this has been tested in laboratories, and it's always hard to, you know, ask someone to come in and be creative, folks, which is one of the reasons I've worked in, in the dance context because I, I, I can see it in the naturalistic environment. But there's a, a task called the alternative uses task, and that's a, one of the techniques that um, is used to get individuals or groups to come up with lots of different uses of something like a brick or a flower pot. Sometimes the tasks we use in psychology experiments themselves are useful kinds of materials. So there are plenty of resources out there of, of, of that kind. And I, I think the other point, we, we're talking very much today about the arts and I there would be a range of other outlets of, of, for creativity too. And I think that's important. So, you know, we right at the beginning we were talking about our own kind of back background in, in a musical context. But I think finding whatever is right for an individual is, is very important too. I would encourage looking at some of those, those tasks for a bit of fun because they are able to be quantified so you can actually measure and, and you can play around with this idea of the, the brainstorming. In, in dance, we call it body storming. You know, just what are the different processes of someone doing this on their own in a group where the group knows each other, members of the group know one another, when the levels of expertise differ. All of these variables really do make a difference, and we know that it's very well documented in, in the literature. So perhaps some tasks like that to explore where creativity, if you like, is optimised, and then uh, those situations where where perhaps there could um, be additional work done, that would be one suggestion that I'd make. Again, going back to Australian Dance Theatre, Gary Stewart, the the artistic director there was passionate about bringing in lots of different experiences for his dancers. Yeah. It, it's pretty boring just trying to create dance five hours a day, five, you know, five days a week. The amount of varied stimulation and, and, and experience. So, Ben, Gary was very interested in mindfulness. He had meditation and yoga kinds of opportunities for his dancers. He loved us scientists being there and we talked about the science. He had them reading cognitive neuroscience and he had them reading evolutionary kinds of accounts of um, one of the works, the beginning of nature, has, is really grounded in evolution. And so he had the dancers reading this kind of work and had scientists and researchers and scholars coming in to discuss these ideas with dancers. So I think the varied kind of medium picking up on that multimodality idea um, that we mentioned earlier, Harry, I think we get very narrow in our domain and, you know, that, that diversity, I think that's the modality aspect to this. Cognitive and task analysis, actually trying to reverse engineer the expert. You know, and again, working with dancers who and choreographers not always adept at saying what their knowledge is, but I can get at it. As a scientist, I know how to to turn that knowledge into to declarative knowledge. That's very empowering for groups as well to understand some of the processes that play. Great. Um, I think empowers as well. 
yeah, so much, Ben. Look, I 100% agree in that idea of multimodality. Harry, you asked, you know, is there a, a preponderance of, of creatives in mission-critical teams? But I think that links to that, this idea that we aren't uh, high-performing individuals aren't just one-trick ponies. They've got this broad base. I mean, David Epstein's just wrote a book called Range, which talks about this, you know, the ability. Uh, he cites sort of a number of sports examples where people who have a broad range of sporting backgrounds as a young child rather than specialising early often have more sort of longevity and, and brilliance in their career. I love a guy called Charlie Munger. He's he's um, Warren Buffett's right-hand man in, in Berkshire Hathaway. He's got all this sort of folksy wisdom. But, but he talks about developing a latticework of models. So having these big ideas from big disciplines, understanding a bit about the science behind it, a bit about, you know, the, the sort of artistic aspect of it, you know, all these different sort of aspects provide a really broad base and they help us join the dots. You know, when we see a novel problem or when we're trying to develop a novel solution, which in many ways is what we're talking about with creativity, if we've got a whole bunch of existing models that we can draw from, it gives us a framework, a platform to, to sort of develop something new. And so I, I couldn't agree more with Kate. The, the most interesting people I know aren't specialists, they're, they're generalists. Yeah, it's kind of a notion of is it pluralism? The word I like is that uh, is bricoleur, that kind of brick bricolage where you know you can kind of tie it up with wire and get the show on the road with anything, you know. And I think we find I definitely see that in. Um, Unfortunately, probably not as much as we used to in uh, good old country men and women who used to turn up on selection and, and in in military. Uh, they just seem to bring uh, that kind of range of tools, a jack of all trades. And so maybe there's something in that. And Kate, going back to a couple of things you mentioned, and one in particular kind of brings it all back to the MCTI, the Mission Critical Team Institute, is about bringing all of these different mission critical teams together in our summits. And we hold them in New York, San Diego, and here in, in Melbourne, and we're about to go to London as well. And we bring in the the, the Kate Stevens, we bring in the the dare I say it, Ben, greybeards like yourself, you know, although uh, Ben's probably a bit too dashing for a greybeard quite yet. <laughs> but, That's pretty grey when it grows, mate. <laughs> and and also the artistic types and the conversations really are quite mind-blowing and I think we might not feel like it sometimes when we're doing these team casts, but the feedback is always, wow, that just that language resonates with me, that talk about ballets and or orchestras would never happen in a team room in, you know, pre-2010, um, be too soft a subject matter or, or whatever. But I can assure you that that's increasing. I remember in around 2010, I went to the US to a special ops concentration and I was talking to one of the human performance managers there and they'd brought in a ballet instructor or, or, or an expert and they were finding that some of the guys bring it back to CQB or just the training in the in, in the tra- in the schoolhouses, they were failing people on basic physiology, not having not being coordinated and or, or not being able to manage the multi-physical challenges that present in, in close quarter battle training. They brought him in he, he, through a conversation and he was saying that uh, he offered that, well, we can retrain that. It's quite easy, you know, uh, with, with certain training methodologies. And all of a sudden there's a realisation that maybe we've been letting 
perfectly good operators go all these years who just tripped over at the door, ah, he's rubbish and kick him out type of thing or her out. And now I'm not sure it's still going on now, but at the time they were looking at how do they retrain those who may not have the the hand-eye coordination necessary to to pass the the training and it throws into questions, you know, what are we picking thinkers or doers, you know, a whole range of discussions that kicked off. So our, our intent at MCTI is to bring those you know, everyone from ballet, music, as I said, Cirque du Soleil, a whole range of areas, business, not corporates to, but uh, individuals who've been in business among uh, Charlie Munger or, a, or, a, or, or or someone like that to share knowledge and stories around um, training people. Harry, you mentioned things that wouldn't have existed in a, a team room or discussions that wouldn't have happened in a team room back in the day. One area that I'm fascinated by increasingly is the, the use of psychedelics in the, the creative space. We're seeing some really interesting research on the potential use of them in treating things like uh, mental health disorders, post-traumatic stress and that sort of stuff. But we're also hearing these whispered snippets coming out of Silicon Valley that people are microdosing on psilocybin as, a, as part of the creative process and and this sort of employment of these these kind of drugs. Kate, I don't know, have, have you sort of come across this in, in any of your research or, or do you have any thoughts on that from a scientific point of view? I can't respond to that in particular, Ben, because I'm not a neuroscientist, so I think I'd be overstepping to to say too much about that. I mean, I I think the whole sense of the endorphins one one gets from physical activity is something that, you know, you can get a pretty good high out of that kind of cardiovascular work. And and the people that we're speaking to, I think, are, are probably in that situation many, many hours of the day. So, no, I I, I probably can't comment on that. The notion of what's happening, again, with music is interesting from from an auditory and and a neurobiology perspective. There is good evidence now from neuroscientists in Canada, Robert Svatore in particular, that music is engaging pleasure and reward kinds of systems in the brain. So dopamine in particular, so that system of dopamine regulation does seem to be engaged and activated by um, music. And this isn't even just creating it, but it could be the perception of music and certainly where there is some emotional kind of response associated with the music. So we can see some relationships like that, even in, in much more benign kinds of situations, I suppose, from those that you're describing. It's the reward mechanism. It's, mm. it's a bit like having a piece of chocolate or, or having sex. Music has this remarkable reinforcing and re- rewarding kind of element to it. And as I say, Zatore and colleagues are, are looking at what the, the neural networks are that, that underpin that biological response. But it's pretty well established now. And I wouldn't be surprised then that you could make the connection by stimulating that through other means, maybe not dopamine, but some of the other systems are engaged and and then you're, you're seeing some creative results makes perfect sense at least logically yeah and and i think not just the reward but also the sort of the inhibition pathways and uh, michael pollan wrote a book called um how to change your mind he, he talks about the sort of emerging research in the 60s and 70s that got kind of um railroaded from a social perspective but talking about the the sort of breaking down of the ego through what we commonly call psychedelic drugs. And I, I wonder if that part of it, you know, the inhibition, the embarrassment, the the sort of stigma that a lot of us associate with with risk-taking in, an, in a creative sense mightn't be a, a sort of 
positive byproduct of that kind of process. Mm, I think the question, the the research question there would be: Is it does it sustain? Is it is it sustained beyond that episode? Mm. I think that that would be the question I'd ask. Yeah, and the, the cultural practice too. I know they've had some challenges in in Silicon Valley with using low level ADHD drugs and whatnot at long term use. So, uh, but I find that Australian lager works really well for me in terms of being super creative, and it does. It's another whole other discussion, but uh, we won't. Um, we we endorse the responsible use of alcohol, the Mission Critical Team Institute. But I, it brings me to my kind of final the final point that I'd like to cover today. Ben, and there's so much more we could talk about. I always feel like I leave these things with plenty more on the park. But the use of creativity you know, as a deliberate practice in recovering our operators and in transitioning out of the teams into civilian life or dealing with you know, mental health issues or, or, or psychosocial challenges that they might present post-service. Have you, you, you're working with the arts program. What, what are you seeing there and what, what, uh, what lessons can you bring to us here? Yeah, sure. So Lisa Howie and the, the Military Arts Program Australia are doing some amazing stuff, offering arts instruction and an arts community for current and former serving Australian Defence Force personnel. And, and part of that, it's not exclusively aimed at people who are having uh, mental health issues, but a big part of it is using art as, as therapy. I, I reckon there's a number of components. One, there's that that sort of cathartic uh, mindfulness sort of practice, which I think I've touched on before. I, I wish I'd discovered this earlier or maybe I wasn't open to it or whatever, but I reckon that's a superpower in itself, the ability to focus and have that sort of mindful period on anything, but in particular arts. I think the second bit and the bonus with any form of art is that you end up with some form of artefact. You get something out of it in, in visual arts in particular, but the something enduring that, that you've created and, and that sense of creativity I think is a really rewarding thing as well. The third one is that it creates a social pathway it creates a new community and for a lot of people in mission critical teams we tend to fuse our role and our our identity we are so invested in the job that that becomes all of who we are and if that gets taken away at a time when we're not ready for it either through injury or you know whatever then that can be really damaging to the the individual from an identity perspective and so becoming an artist thinking of yourself with a, a new identity that's distinct to your your professional role can be really important but also it creates a new social network and and many of our mission critical teams a lot of people do because they're all consumed by the nature of the work they're socializing all their support networks are work related as well and so i think all of those facets add up to a very positive sort of contribution to someone's life who's who's transitioning out about any high pressure role but we're obviously talking about mission critical teams in this context Kate, what do you see in the research in terms of recovery and therapeutic nature of art and, and create or art as a form of creativity or creativity in general? Yeah, I think the, the research is really coming online now. I think there's been assumptions made and we've always wanted this to work. I think that there's starting to be more and more evidence around art and music therapies. Just Googling those terms will, will bring up some, um, some good journals and, and some rigorous research that's starting to to emerge. University of Melbourne has a very strong program in in music therapy, for example, and and I'm familiar with the the uh, group that Ben just mentioned. It's it's expression. I think you're you're regulating and you're expressing 
and artists have done this for a long time and, and I don't know that we're always creating something because we're feeling great. So I think, it, it, it again, just logically it makes perfect sense where there are some challenges there that arts um, in various forms that, that are a very useful way to regulate and, and to express. Again, you, some some tools and techniques for that are, are always helpful. But also that idea of plasticity. You know, we have been doing some work in, in the Institute looking at older people learning a musical instrument as the way, if there's any evidence in a longitudinal study, whether there's any possibility of preventing, say, cognitive decline by learning something as intricate and as multimodal as, an, as something like the keyboard in later life. And what we're doing in that study, led by Jenny McRitchie, is to not only have people learning the music, but also improvise. And in fact, she's set it up as an experiment to can compare the benefits of not only m- learning music and playing under the guidance of a teacher, but what about learning to improvise? So again, there's a hypothesis there that there's something about the creative aspect that takes us just one step further than simply putting down new neural pathways or being stimulated, actually improvising and creating may well have benefits that um, we're only just beginning to understand now. Again, we, we you know, the evidence and the, the, the science around this is, is always needed, but it is coming online. And, yeah, I think my experience with local health districts and working with clinicians and, and speaking with people in the health system in Australia at the moment, there's great openness to non-pharmacological interventions. I speak in in particular from dementia, but other areas as well, you know, that there is a real recognition of embodied cognition, the psychosocial affective dynamics of human behaviour and human experience, and in most cases a recognition of, if you like, these less medical or um, models of therapy or treatment as being profound and, and very beneficial. Probably not an alternative, but in, in you know, perhaps in combination with whatever else might be needed. So I, I take that also as something that I, I can see has changed in my, my career, that there is, a, there is a welcoming across health and medicine for these non-pharmacological kinds of programs and interventions. I, I hope that gives you some confidence in it, Harry. That's probably the best I can say on, on that. Yeah, fantastic, Kate. And the comments there, absolutely. And I think this whole discussion suggests that there's benefits in exploring the concept of creativity, whether it be through the arts or through uh, uh, alternative team exercises or looking at other fields. And it goes to all the core things that we need to see in our operators to, to, to help them survive and sustain and then recover from their, the extreme experiences that that, were, that they characterised by mission-critical team environments. You know, I think uh, being creative or, or exploring other artistic endeavours goes to judgment, goes to perception, goes to decision-making. I think it goes to leadership as well. We talk about being playful and allowing people to, to fail and be vulnerable and, and make mistakes, etc. cetera. Uh, believe it or not, we still have issues inside many mission critical teams. They're anchored in the, dare I say it, in the 80s and the 90s. They'll self-confess that. A lot of the training techniques are quite anchored and 
and these types of discussions are so useful in opening up the, the discourse. I know here in Melbourne, for example, the mission critical teams listen to the team casts and it's the young operators coming through the future leaders and future instructor cadre that are really embracing this. Um, and they're still hard edged. They're still, they still realize they've got to fight fires and be command driven and hierarchically driven and work in disparate teams. It doesn't make them softer or anything. It actually adds to their toolkits. And I really appreciate hearing it. One, one thing I didn't get a chance to mention, um, and, and it's, I think it's absolutely crab is the, um, there's a, a cultural artifact in, I think it's in New York Fire Department or FN, FDNY, but I'm sure it's across most fire departments across the world, where they come together and cook and hang mm. out around the kitchen. And it's a real a heath, if you like, for the community inside fire stations in their battalions. And that's where they play and they joke around and they cook together and eat together. And that's a whole other thing, this uh, notion of uh, I think it's commensality, which is eating together and the neuro benefits and team benefits of that. That's a whole other issue. But I love that sense of of play. And I think there's a great, I'll have to dig it out and put it in the, post it in the show notes. There's a great, a really good uh, documentary on, I think it's set in, in Fire Department in New York, it's kind of centred around September 11, which by the way, changed everything for mission critical teams and, and, and was the origin of the Mission Critical Team Institute, the events there. That's what I'd like to see kind of this discussion bloom into is to say, what are you what are you doing in your mission critical team in the team house in the schoolhouses to promote a creative fun environment it's not a waste of time at all it's actually enhancing and, and building a strong team and an individual kind of neuro pathways we always finish uh, with a couple of questions and you've probably covered them here, but I'll just give you a couple of seconds to think about what can operators do on Monday to enhance a, a, a creative or artistic endeavour or any of the topics we've been talking about today, just a, a moment to think about. And then I'm going to ask you a personal question about what you're reading and listening to now relative to the discussion or not. But firstly, Kate, if I go to you, if you were dropped into a mission critical team on Monday and you could uh, enact one thing or change one thing or introduce something, what would it be to enhance an awareness of creativity or or, or practice? Yeah, I'd probably encourage the idea of of brainstorming and body storming. I'd probably probe and see what people are doing and, and really understand the team as individuals, what they do do, perhaps to make explicit the creativity that they may not even be aware is part of their lives. I think the some of the things you were just talking about there, Harry, are also about identity. And, uh, Ben, I think you use that term as well. So what are those team members' identity and, and through a creative lens um, perhaps? And I, I love the example of cooking because it takes us beyond necessarily the, the arts kind of context. There are these other domains. So I'd, I'd probe that. And I'd probably have fun with something like the alternative uses task and and run little experiments to show, you know, the conditions under which um, there's the, the greatest number of ideas or creativity. Love it. Just one, one, just expand for me on uh, the identity part of that. So you express your own identity in, in what? Yeah, I mean, I think you were describing the mission critical team members' cognitive kinds of attributes and working through a creative experience as well. And Ben said this earlier, you talked about decision-making, but there's identity. It is who you are. You're a leader, you're a decision-maker, but it is also who you are. And I think that that is something that is cultivated through a, a creative kinds of means as well. 
it really loops back to that point you were making earlier about the therapeutic aspects here. Again, working with people with dementia, one of the saddest aspects of it is the loss of identity. Mm. And, uh, and I think where there is any erosion of who we are, and it happens when we start to be to lose our long-term memory or lose our language. We lose who we are as memory goes. And I would imagine that there are other situations where the identity is is at risk in some way. So finding it through these other kinds of means, even if it's cooking, not even if it's cooking, cooking is a wonderful example. It's creative means, and as you say, it's also the interpersonal and the social. Things will drive from a Freudian point of view, to, to satisfy the, the hun- hunger kind of drive. So these are, they sound trivial and fun, but they're actually fundamental to, to yeah. who we are and who cultures are. That's a great point. They are fundamental, and I think that's the point that's slowly seeping through, that the importance of these things and and not leaving them to default, being deliberate about it. And actually, as, as leaders, I talk a, a lot to people going into leadership position, be deliberate about what you want to do with these. Don't just kind of have a day or enough. Ben, I can think of nothing better than seeing a bunch of knuckle-dragging operators uh, putting on the aprons and uh, making some cupcakes or something, mate, and uh, having a bit of a joke around. What, but what's your recommendations for Monday? Uh, what, what can operators do on Monday? Mate, I, I said it before, get rid of that idea that I'm not an artist, you know, the, that sort of mental block that, that I can't be creative. Recognise that this is like everything, a trainable skill. We can get better at this sort of thing. And for me, that was the big sort of tipping point that I still don't think of myself as an artist, but I, I definitely think of myself as someone who can get a lot of benefit out of art. And no matter what the, the medium is, whether it is visual arts, whether it's music, whether it's banging bongo drums, whatever it is, uh, recognise that there's those benefits and you know the, that cliche just start I found drawing fantastic because you can always carry a little sketchbook and you'd be surprised at just how many dead moments there are in your life in between you know waiting for an appointment or on a train or, or whatever it might be where you can actually produce something and view it as, as that sort of lifelong journey uh, that Bloody clock tower in the, the centre of, of Hereford says, you know, where the pilgrims masters, we shall go always a little further. That idea of a little further every time you get around down range, metaphorically speaking, every time you do a rep, every time you, you create a drawing or play a note, you, you're not only benefiting yourself in the moment, but you're building that skill slowly. Brilliant, mate. Hey, um, I, I like to think of, of Keith Richards as an artist and an elite performer as well, and he's probably would, for me, embody everything we've talked about today, including the, the, the psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I love that notion of uh, one thing I, I love, you, know, you, don't, you, you don't call yourself an artist, but I, I think there's, there's art in all of us. There's no doubt about it. It's absolutely universal. It's so therapeutic. Ben, you're, you're under the mind. Monica, I love you post some photos of yourself on planes and trains and just kind of random places sketching. What's your moniker on? Is it on Instagram? Yeah, it was um, papa underscore one zero uh, O-N-E underscore seven S-E-V-E-N. I'll throw you a link, but, yeah, I, I sort of did that initially 
because um, I was still in the unit and, and probably uh, uh, wanted a bit more anonymity about it. I, I don't know if I was, I was terribly proud of what I was producing either. But that actually, it's, it's funny, that, that social media side of things has been an incredibly supportive community in that respect. And I think there's some interesting aspects clearly beyond the scope of this discussion about that kind of uh, platform as a way of uh, generating that community in an artistic sense. Yeah, I'd point people to it because uh, it, it, it's a great example of what can be achieved um, and there's lots of people who who could find artistic outlets on those listening. Finally, last thing, what are you listening to, reading, watching, whatever right now? Kate, what, what's, uh, what's beside your bed or in your podcast? Uh, look, I have been reading ever since uh, COVID. I've, I've had gotten back into reading and I am currently reading Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe and understanding what happened as as animals came off the first fleet and and other kind of ships coming to Australia and just the the way the dentition of sheep and and the different kinds of hooves really impacted the environment of Australia so early on. So I've enjoyed that. I've just finished Elizabeth MacArthur by Michelle Scott Tucker. I'm at Western Sydney University. I know Parramatta very well and I've enjoyed reading about Elizabeth, so John MacArthur's wife, and a, a wonderful historical account, beautifully researched but so readable about Elizabeth MacArthur in those um, uh, during the, the 19th century and for a bit of fun and a lot of humour and a lot of creativity, I have to say. I've been reading the Fred Dagg scripts by John Clark and they're hilarious. So <laughs> that's what I've been dabbling in. Who was he ABC? He did a bit of work on the ABC with uh, his offside, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah Brian Dore. But Brian Dore, yeah. even predates this. And it's, it's I was just sharing with my partner last night that he, a parody of different poets is hilarious. And, and just the, the use of language, it's very, very light, but there's there's a great intellect behind it as well. Definitely. Um, but very, very readable. So it's a joy. Brilliant, Kate. Ben, Pronky, what are you? Mate, I, I've just finished listening to the, the audio book of um, 10% Happier, a book by a guy called Dan Harris, uh, who was a, a US American ABC journalist. And, and it's a cracker. It's a sort of a cynic's approach to meditation and mindfulness. He takes us on this journey of his own experiences, but through his research and his work and his own sort of <laughs> breakdowns, how he came across mindfulness as a very cynical person. And it, it sort of hit a chord with me. I, I I think uh, meditation's got one of the the worst PR bloody problems ever. I think people think of it as mung beans and and hippies, and and it's just such a powerful tool to to get your head straight. And and actually, in a martial application, is is bloody priceless. And so it's it's a, apart from being a really entertaining read, just a, a laugh out loud sort of passages. It's also a really good uh, vector, I think, for for anyone you know the Aussie bloke kind of person who uh, may uh, see a stigma attached to things like meditation. It's a it's a good gateway drug to, to meditation. And I've been listening to back to to Vulture Street, the old Powderfinger album. I'd um, been doing a lot of Spotify playlists, and you forget how good an album can be you know a bunch of songs that are strung together in a deliberate reason and and tell a story over and above the the individual sort of tunes and maybe that's a nice little book into our discussion on emergence that the the property of an album that doesn't exist in any single track that's something of beauty a well-constructed album and so yeah i've been enjoying getting back to to listening to albums rather than playlists it is a good bookend, mate, and um, on music, 
we play a lot of vinyl in this house, you know, dozens and hundreds, probably hundreds of records now, and the physical nature of putting on vinyl, having to get up and redo it and muck, muck around with the, 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 the old phonograph to get it, you know, give it a kick and a Fonzie tap on top. It kind of captures that embodied cognition that we've, we've, we've really been flirting around the edges of, and creativity is really only one aspect of it. It's, it's such a, uh, a massive area, a complex, adaptive kind of systems approach uh, to the discussion today. And I really appreciate you both making time. I know you're both flat out, Professor Kate Stevens and um, Ben Pronk. I really uh, appreciate you coming onto the team cast and uh, sharing a bit of wisdom today. Magic, mate. Thank you. And, and thank you, Kate. I, I tr- uh, truly enjoyed the conversation. It was fascinating. Likewise, Ben. Lovely to, to hear from you again. And thanks for the opportunity, Harry. I've enjoyed it immensely. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks again for listening to the Teamcast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or on Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information about our courses or anything else, please reach out to us through our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson. You can contact her on janice at missioncti.com. And once again, thanks, Janice, and to Shelby Ray Productions too for helping us to put the show together. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening. I hope you have a great day.